hey there, Julie. Hi, Connor. Long time no see. Uh, still haven't seen in person. Fair enough. We're here hosting this over Zoom now. As so, it seems uh, all podcasts are doing these days. It sure does seem that way. Well, it's been a while since we last had one of these podcasts, speaking of yeah, which. Our apologies to anyone that does in fact listen to us. <laughs> I think we last did the actual podcast in March. Uh, yeah. Right? That was the last mm-hmm. time we saw each other person to person. Yep. And then we were like, this will go away. No big deal. We'll take a month off of recording. We'll be able to do it again in person. No big deal. Lo and behold, it's December. <laughs> <laughs> what, nine months later, we're finally getting back on track? Yeah, I saw some Twitter thing that was like, so you're telling me that March is in three months when I'm still processing March. <laughs> Which is 2020, the year that wasn't. Yeah. So uh, hello and welcome to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway, the quarantine edition. Quarantine edition. I per- perma-quarantine. We're going to try to start getting back on the recording train um, moving forward. Hopefully we'll have some Zoom interviews. If not, Connor and I have got a, a home desk situation set up that's a little insane, but works. And uh, my name is Julie as a refresher, grad student here at UNL, master's student. And I'm Connor Barnes. I'm a doctoral student here at the University of Nebraska at Well in the School of Natural Resources. Yeah. So... So, Thanks Julie, what's the topic? In. Topic yeah, for today. Topic for the day is probably one that we, uh, had we been structuring our content so that we started at the most basic, most general, and moved up from there, as opposed to diving right into resilience, would have been the first one. So we're talking about specifically heterogeneity today, um, but also quite a bit of scale. And so these two concepts are kind of core ideas in not only ecology, but just maybe everything. <laughs> And uh, they underpin a lot of the research in this field and are mentioned pretty heavily. So we wanted to give them sort of their own episode. And if you're new to the podcast, this is a great place to start anyway. Yeah, absolutely. They're very inherent to the entire idea of ecological resilience. Yes. And a lot of just science-based methods and materials are impacted by these ideas. Yep. And urban planning... um, you know, governance, everything like that. If you don't know at what scale or applying whatever it is that you're doing, you haven't even figured out the basics. So, yeah. So, so I, as a, a roadmap for this episode, should we move into that? We're going to do concept introduction with me. Connor's going to do a foundational paper. So for us, that usually means either sort of an older paper in the field or a paper that lays out the foundations of the field really nicely, even if it is uh, in the modern day. Uh, what we call a modern paper, so a more maybe up-to-date recent application of the concept or concepts, and then resilience, and I'll be doing the modern paper, and then resilience in the news, or we'll both present a news article from perhaps recently, perhaps not, sometime in quarantine maybe, uh, of where we've seen the concept of heterogeneity scale or both in the real world. Sounds great to me. Yeah. To dive on in to the concept introduction, like we said, this these sort of ideas sort of truly precede ecological resilience and basically every other field and they i think that they come very intuitively and they are sort of how we think about and see the world to begin with um but this puts words to our experiences as humans and our ability to view the world through the lens of other creatures at the scales of cities nations ecosystems and at and i think an important aspect of time scale is greater than our own lifespans i think that's where 
um, maybe we forget about scale sometimes. Um, and so we're covering two concepts, mostly heterogeneity, a little bit of scale. And as a shameless pitch, we do have um, online educational modules, sort of, uh, what would you call them? Encyclopedia style articles online on both of these concepts. If you Google UNL, you need Nebraska Lincoln, PASL, which is the Plant and Soil Science eLibrary, we have one entitled Scale and one entitled Heterogeneity under the Ecological Resilience sort of folder um, authored by our colleagues, Dylan and Jesse. And we'll put links in the show notes about that. So, Yeah, we'll definitely put in links and they are easy to Google and they're really yes. useful in terms of getting these concepts down, something right. to look at rather than just listen to. Them. Yeah. And that's, that's the limitation of this podcast, right? Is we are frequently talking about visual or concepts easily understood in the visual um, through the audio format. <laughs> and so we have some very nice um, images that our colleagues have made in those modules. So if anything I say sounds like total garbage, there's probably a nice picture that makes it a lot simpler at one of these locations. All right. So I'll start with scale because I think scale is even more intuitive than heterogeneity. So scale refers to the spatial and temporal dimension of natural phenomena. That just means the um, space and time, the what you're looking at, and you know that location's place in time, be that seconds, months, years, whatever. Um, it provides context for observation and measurements of objects. Um, all observations have a spatial temporal scale. So at a really, so one way that I think when I first became aware of scale as maybe a human mm -hmm. was in my middle school, they did in the science hallway, they had this really cool thing where they had pictures on the wall that were meant to demonstrate spatial scale. Uh, they didn't really say this explicitly, but that was the meaning that I at least got from it. They had a picture of like an apple on a blanket. And then the next picture right next to it was a man and a woman having a picnic on that blanket and the apple, you know, is between them. So we've moved out a couple feet from the apple. The mm. next picture, you can still see the couple on the picnic blanket with the apple, but now you can see that they're actually in a park. So we've moved out maybe a hundred more feet into the sky. If you're thinking about the camera, the camera's going up. Um, yeah. And so now you can see the couple on the blanket in the park with the apple. And then the next picture is maybe another thousand feet up or 10,000 feet up or whatever, you can see, you can just see the little patch of grass, the park, but now you can see the city around it. So it's an apple and a couple on a blanket in a park in a city. Then it keeps going up and you go to city, to state, to country, to earth, to solar system, and eventually to, you know, there's just a little arrow pointing at like a galaxy picture that's like, you know, the apple is here basically. <laughs> which I thought was pretty novel to put in like a sixth grade hallway as like, Hey, we're trying to teach you about scale. Look at these pictures. Yeah. That's really evocative imagery. Well, I considering I, I see yeah, I still remember it 12 years later <laughs> 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 must have had some impact. So that's in essence what spatial scale is. It's how are you looking at this thing in front of you? Um, you know, how close are you to it? What space does it take up? And maybe what percentage of space does it take up in the larger picture that you're looking at? So, you know, the apple on the blanket, maybe the apple 
is a pretty noticeable, significant part of that scene. Once you get to the Earth and galaxy level, the apple is but a very small and significant less than a dot on this spatial representation. Um, there's sort of two terms to sort of put this, what I'm saying, into context. There's grain and extent in scale. So grain is the size or the duration of the individual units of observation. So one way that we can easily think about this is pixel resolution. We've all seen photographs that look very grainy and pixely. You can't quite get the detail of the image because each individual sort of color block on the image is so large that you get just kind of a, I don't know what, like a, almost a color gradient that doesn't give you the fine details of what's happening in the image. So if, sure. if yeah, if you were looking at this picnic blanket, if you were looking down, maybe there would be a, you know, couple blocks that represent one person, a couple blocks that represent the other. Maybe there's just a little red square and you're like, what's that? And, but as those grains get smaller, as the pixels get a finer resolution, you can see, oh, it's a man, a woman, and an apple, you know, reveals okay. information about that um, unit of, in this case, space. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so that is sort of one way to think about grain, plot size, picture resolution, something like that. Extent, on the other hand, is what we were talking about with the entire window from which all observations are taken. So in the context of this sort of Apple human Earth galaxy, extent is how big the current picture that you're looking at at the wall is. So if we're just looking at the park, your extent is that picture of the park with the picnic. Uh, but you could extend that extent up to the galaxy, you know, picture, or just down right. to that picture of just the apple. So extent is like, how much of a scene are you actually paying attention to? Do you care about? In the context of science, it's, you know, are you trying to look at climate change on the global scale? You're trying to think about every country and every place on earth? Or are you studying a problem specific to, you know, for us, Nebraska or ranching in Nebraska or to a particular, maybe you're just looking at a certain park, maybe, you know, it's right. It's fr it frames your question and then grain comes into context there because, you know, when we think about pixel resolution, like photos, you're like, I want a higher resolution always, right? You want a more beautiful picture, but that might take up more um, digital memory to store. It might take more expensive equipment to capture that detail of an image. So while we might say we always want, you know, as detailed, maybe small grains as possible to capture as much information as possible, maybe that is not uh, feasible time-wise, energy-wise, cost-wise. So that's sort of where, this is just sort of a way of framing your study if you're a scientist uh, or any other problem if you're not a scientist. Mm, sure. Yeah. And so this has just been spatial that I'm talking about, but scale also refers to the temporal, uh, the time aspect. So these exact same core concepts, grain and extent, um, and the core concepts of scale apply to time. So grain in this case might be, are you measuring something every second? Are you measuring something every day? Are you measuring something every year? Are you measuring something every 10,000 years? It's like, ge like geologists work on the time scale of millennia because rocks don't change a whole lot in the human lifespan. I can right. go stare at a rock. Maybe there'll be a little water erosion. I probably wouldn't gain very much from that. Uh, but like I work in like microbial ecology, microbes don't live very long. I might need to be taking samples uh, at a much 
faster time scale than a geologist. Extent, same thing. A uh, geologist might say, I want to see how this volcano came to be, uh, and, but they're not going to study that plot of land for a year. They're going to use right. techniques to try to infer what has happened over the scale of 10,000 years, a million years, things like that. So again, it's a way of framing, and I'm talking about it in the scientific discipline, but Connor, can you think of a way in which grain and extent for temporal and spatial scale might be useful maybe in the law or you know policy sides, places where you worked? Sure. Well, you can certainly think about it in the context of how laws change over time, right? Mm -hmm. And looking at different, for example, legal cases and when they might apply in some situations versus others because different courts have different juris jurisdictions. Sure. So think about um, circuit courts, for example. So these are federal courts that are above trial courts, mm -hmm. and they have a specific region within the United States where their law applies. So court decisions in the Eighth Circuit mm -hmm. might apply to a certain set of states, but courts in the Fifth Circuit might interpret the same federal statutes differently, and right. so the law is applied differently. So that would be an example of spatial heterogeneity, right? right? In terms of temporal heterogeneity, of course, or scale, statutes, I think you mean. Or I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm already ahead of us. I know. So, uh, in terms of temporal scale, exactly, Julie. Uh, we would also see the same thing in the context of how statutes change over time, how court cases and decisions change over time, um, how those laws are interpreted. Right. Nice. Yeah. And so that's sort of scale in a nutshell, spatial and temporal. Um, and I think that is necessary to know before we jump into heterogeneity, as we'll very quickly see, heterogeneity is basically application of scale in some ways. So heterogeneity is the, very, is the quality of variability within a system that accounts for scale. So the opposite of heterogeneity is a word we've probably all heard, homo homogeneity, which is basically the quality of something being exactly the same. Um, a bucket of water that is just pure water would be homogenous. A, you know, beach with sand and water and rocky outcroppings and, you know, some vegetation would be heterogeneous. It's, you know, made up of many different things, which is basically what heterogeneity is. It is just the quality of something being made up of many different things, whatever you define those things to be. Um, it, I mean, and that's, heterogeneity is pretty easy to find. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and, and a, a core dif a core concept is the difference between the way we view scale and the heterogeneity of landscape versus the functional or the true spatial and temporal scale. So what I mean by that is basically like, we view the world in a certain way. We, a lot of what we think of as something that might be homogenous uh, might actually not be at maybe a microscopic scale. Or if we look at a big patch of grass that we happen to be standing in, it might look very homogenous. It's just grass. But if you had another drone sort of, you know, pictures going up, up, and up, you can see that right next to this patch of grass is a forest. And next to that is a mountain. And you know what I mean? So again, it, there's the viewpoint of humans. There's the viewpoint of scale. And then there's also something called sort of functional heterogeneity or functional scale, which is um, what scale and, you know, spatial scale, temporal scale, 
um, and sort of that grain and extent element do you need for your particular work? So if you're a scientist, again, and you're studying a question that really only, that you only care about the answer to in a small geographic location, your scale and your grain and extent only needs to be within that geographic location. Um, sure. And so that can help you, again, narrow down where do you spend your money, where do you spend your time, that sort of thing. And the same sort of thing applies to heterogeneity, where um, if you're trying to figure out if you know something is heterogeneous, if you're looking at the landscape scale, maybe you care if there's a plot of grass next to a forest next to mountains, but maybe you don't care down to the one foot by one foot little patch how much heterogeneity is in there. You know, maybe what when you were looking at that field, you're like, well, it's full of grass. But if you start get looking at the little one foot by one foot, you can see there's flowers and grass and little shrubs and there's a bunch of bugs in here and maybe there's a bunny. And you know what I mean? So it, it depends what you're working on, what you care about, how you really define a place as heterogeneous or homogeneous um, and, you know, what scales you want to be working at. So I think that's sort of the background. I don't know if you have anything you want to add there, Connor. I do. So yeah, I absolutely agree, Julie. And just to tie this back into one of the interviews we've had in the past, uh, we had Chris Helser on here and he was doing a experiment looking at a just one particular small segment of prairie. I believe it was one meter square or two yeah, meters one, square. Yeah, one meter square, I think. One meter square. And he was taking photos of that same square meter over time mm -hmm. and looking for it at all of the different spatial heterogeneity going on in there, as well yeah. as temporal heterogeneity, just yeah. the changes of the seasons involved and the different plants and animals and insects that he would see there. And there was just a lot going on in that one meter. Yeah. And I think that he tried to take a picture every day, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. But so in this case, in that case, his sort of temporal scale grain would be one day he's taking a picture every day he's looking at the sort of daily changes and his extent uh, temporally is i think he did this for a year so that's his sort of temporal extent his spatial extent is that one meter by one meter and i think he tried to capture pictures of basically everything living in there bugs etc 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 um and so that's a great example because if you know if he was trying to capture the biodiversity of that sort of grass that he was working in, but across miles and miles, he might have to do some sort of representative sampling um, and might not catch that full diversity of a small space like that. So really good example. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move into your foundational paper? Sure, that works for me. So the paper I brought in today for show and tell <laughs> <laughs> is heterogeneity as the basis for rangeland management. This is by Sam Fullendorf et al., 2017. Mm -hmm. It's actually the fifth chapter in a book, uh, Rangeland Systems, Processes, Management, and Challenges, edited by David Brisky. And that is actually available online. It's oh, a, nice. It's a nice, big, thick book, but it's a online... A free book. <laughs> a free book. You can run through Google Scholar and find it. Oh, beautiful. But I really liked this paper because it very concisely and breaks down well different concepts inherent in heterogeneity. And of course, it's not a foundational paper in the context of age. Yeah. It's not one of the original papers that brought about the concept of heterogeneity or anything like that, but just the definitions and the breakdown is really nice. 
So that's why I decided to share it in the first place. However, the paper actually does talk a little, about, a little bit about where heterogeneity, and especially in ecology context, comes from. It discusses just a little bit where um, there were originally, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, calls in the academic community to think about spatial and temporal scales in the context of ecological research. And what would that look like? And what resulted from that is the field of landscape ecology and mm. looking at these different patterns of variation and studying the landscapes for different types of scales and relationships between scales. And as time went on, that became more and more accepted in the scientific community. And that's how we kind of wound up where we are today. So Fullendorf et al. go into, um, you know, the, the idea of heterogeneity in rangelands but they start off by breaking down what heterogeneity is, different types of heterogeneity, and sources for heterogeneity. So the paper starts with a discussion on, first off, command and control management, which some of our listeners might be familiar with. Halling and Meath, 1996, have a paper uh, that's entitled Command and Control and the Pathology of Natural Resources Management. And that's a very seminal paper that discusses how our current natural resources framework attempts to eliminate or, at the very least, it ignores heterogeneity in our systems. Mm. Uh, we tend to try and create certainty in our prod production, particularly at where agriculture is concerned. And as a result, we basically simplify these systems and create crop monocultures, right? Mm -hmm. So think about growing a whole lot of corn or a whole lot of soybeans. There's not really any variation there, right? We all eat try to grow in one particular field the same variety of corn and it's only corn, for mm -hmm. example, right? So creating these big monocultures, the authors argue, creates short-term benefits to efficiency, for example. We've definitely developed a system where we can grow a lot of food, but it also leads to the long-term degradation and resilience of these systems. You really right. need to have that uh, heterogeneous diversity aspect to your system or you're going to lose resilience in the system over time. Mm -hmm. So Follendorf et al. take time to point out our recurring theme, Julie, here, <laughs> that heterogeneity can't be understood or applied without explicitly considering scale in both time and space. And they take the time to delve into how all of that works and uh, delve into the different types of heterogeneity. So, for example, they compare what they call measured versus functional heterogeneity. And we talked uh, a little bit in the yeah. section uh, about functional heterogeneity, right? So they also talk a bit about spatial versus temporal heterogeneity. But just to start off, we'll talk about measured and functional heterogeneity. Sounds good. So measured heterogeneity is defined as gauging the variability of an ecological property or process without explicit relations to variability in animal behavior or ecological function. What the heck does that mean? Because oh, it's that is ask. a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that means that heterogeneity is artificially created by the scientist or the person making observations. The human so it's perspective. Not, exactly. And not even, uh, I would not even say the human perspective in terms of just uh, humanity in general or a person walking by, right? It is the scientist or the mm. observer who is doing the measurement, creating the study, making that sort of observation, right? So, for example, if you are conducting a study and for your methods, you use a random distribution with one meter square sampling plots, 
uh, the variation you calculate from the, the plot size and, and the arrangement, that's something that you made up, and that is the result of measured heterogeneity. It's something that you have artificially created. It's not inherent in the landscape. It's not an inherent property, anything like that. That's something that you picked out. Perhaps you had specific reasons for doing so, mm -hmm. right? Um, because we've determined through the scientific process that these are the best way to, these are the best methods for going about the study, right. right? But it's still something that humans, yeah, just artificially made up. Yeah, I mean, we have to, because if you're, if you're looking at a whole landscape, you can't know every single creature, every single, you know, uh, whatever you are studying in that landscape. So we have to do representative sampling, but that still is in and of itself what you're talking about, kind of a bias. Yes, exactly. So in contrast, functional heterogeneity isn't based on the observer making these studies or, or observations or anything like that. Instead, it's the variability at a particular scale that influences the function of specific ecological property or processes. So to go back to our ant example that we discussed earlier, uh, scale is super important for the ant at a because it's operating at a specific level, right? The the blankets maybe in the apple mm -hmm. and the grass surrounding it, right? It doesn't care about any of this planetary galactic stuff. Right, it's exactly. concerned with the grass and the blanket. On the other hand, um, those people, for example, are going to be more concerned with the park and the city mm -hmm. level. They don't necessarily care about the galactic scale either, yeah. but they're concerned with um, a bigger scale than the ant, but a smaller scale than the solar system. Mm-hmm. So what's important here is that these uh, system properties kind of define the scale at what a uh, person who wants to do research on uh, you know, a species like an ant or something is going to take a look at. So uh, like you mentioned earlier, Julie, the person studying the ant isn't going to care about you know, these cityscapes mm -hmm. or the, the biosphere as a whole, right? It's going to the, the study is going to be focused on maybe a particular park or even one square meter within a particular park. Right. And so the spatial and temporal scale is going to be defined by the object you're studying rather than the observer. So that's functional heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. Those are things. So things that you're going to want to take into account when you're studying something like that is, you know, the species life cycle. What's, is that a short time scale or a mm -hmm. long time scale? Right. You want to think about uh, the climate does the climate of this one particular square meter uh, differ compared to perhaps a different study site that you're looking at? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so these things are all going to have a impact on the scale of the observation that you're looking at and the, the species that you're studying. So in addition to that measured versus functional heterogeneity, Tholendorf et al. also compare spatial versus temporal heterogeneity. So spatial heterogeneity describes how a system property like uh, nutrients or types of vegetation, excuse me, vary among physical points on the landscape. So you can look at your one square meter study area, you can mark out different physical points on it and note the differences between those two points. Mm -hmm. So uh, going back to our example with Chris Helser, looking at uh, point A in our one square square meter plot of land versus point B. And what are the differences in vegetation, mm -hmm. both spatially, so looking at vegetation A and point A and vegetation B and point B, and in terms of like uh, the animal species or the insect species that we might see at point A versus point B. Temporal heterogeneity, on the other hand, refers to variability at one particular point in space over the course of time. 
So for example, if a lake was your study area, maybe you're studying the biology of a, a particular lake, and that's your scale, uh, your physical scale, excuse me. Then you might decide to uh, study that lake over time and take a look at the different functions depending uh, on the time of year. So the lake might be frozen, and so I have certain ecological processes involved. Mm -hmm. The lake might be in a turbid state and very warm, and so it would have a different set of ecological processes, so on and so forth. And that temporal variability is going to have an impact on your study and what species are present, what sort of geological processes are going on, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And of course, the authors also take the time to note that uh, we typically measure one or the other at a time just because we're, we're looking to study a, a part for a particular question as scientists. But the two are technically inseparable, right? We have both spatial and temporal variation going on at the same time right. as we live and breathe, right? <laughs> and we, yeah, we, we're sort of time is always, at least for us at our scale, moving. So can't really take exactly. that out of the equation at any point in time. But I think this reinforces a point that we've repeatedly discussed on the podcast, and that's a, a core idea in ecological resilience theory is that systems are dynamic and ever-changing. Mm -hmm. They aren't static. We've talked about this with the adaptive cycle, for example, and uh, even in the ecological resilience first episode. Uh, these systems don't stay in one particular state. They're always changing. They're always moving. There's uh, a flow to the energy. And Fullendorf et al. Uh, can point that out and tie it into a bit to resilience. So Fullendorf et al. also delve into sources for heterogeneity. So they specifically apply it to a rangeland context, but um, you know we can take these and apply them outside that context as well to any kind of an ecological system, really, or even social systems as well. So they discuss inherent heterogeneity and disturbance-driven heterogeneity as core sources for heterogeneity. Interesting. So for inherent heterogeneity, think about it as the variability driven by abiotic factors. Think geology, for example. Mm -hmm. Think about soil depth, soil type, water availability, that sort of thing. This contributes to heterogeneity in other ways, right? It's not just these uh, particular differences that we might look at in a soil map, for example. Instead, they influence the heterogeneity we see in the biotic factors, too. Mm -hmm. So types of species present, they'll like some particular types of soil more than others, or they might like uh, water availability in different <laughs> degrees. So in addition to that, we have disturbance-driven heterogeneity, which is variability created by Shockingly enough, disturbances, right? So think about fire, grazing, volcanoes, tornadoes, human activity, like uh, construction, for example, sure. that sort of thing. These disturbances can be very temporary. So you build a building and then you go away and leave it there, right? So the, the surrounding landscape will have been disturbed through all the construction. But once all that construction has gone, it's not going to reoccur, or at least not for a long time. Sure. In contrast, you might have persistent regular occurrences. So for example, in a landscape where we see a lot of fire, uh, grassland, for example, you might see fires pop up every two or three years, perhaps, mm -hmm. regularly burn that area. And so that would be a regular occurrence. We, we see fire and some of these others, like tornadoes, for example, as things that species have to adapt to on a regular basis. Right. 
And probably worth pointing out, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, that disturbance, the way that we in resilience and ecology speak about it, is not inherently negative. Like when you mentioned fires, fire is necessary and great in a lot of ecosystems. So disturbance just means that it is disturbed. It is changed. It doesn't mean that it's evil or bad or anything like that. Right. There's no normative value associated exactly. with it. It's, it's not good. It's not bad. It just is. And what's important about these disturbances is that they create temporal or spatial heterogeneity on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Going back to our fire example, some species might quickly recover and become dominant. They really like that fire because it allows them to regrow and spread really quickly. But then they might eventually lose that dominance as other species also recover and then gradually take over that area especially as the time sense of fire increases. Mm -hmm. So some species need that disturbance in order to be successful as a species. They rely on, rely on that fire or other disturbance. Absolutely. Now, Fullendorf et al. also provide three case studies talking about heterogeneity in a rangeland context. I'm not going to go too deep into them because it's very application-based, and gotcha. I know your paper goes into application quite a bit. So I'm just going to briefly mention them, and if people are interested they absolutely can read the paper and yeah. learn more about them, right? Yeah, I've read sort of Fullendorf's stuff before in, in context of like range, Great Plains kind of work. So if any if anyone listening, if that's your area of either expertise or interest, highly recommend this author. Yeah, go for it. Fullendorf et al. provide, like I said, three case studies on heterogeneity. So the first one is grazing herbivores, basically how uh, changes in the landscape affect herbivore migration patterns. An easy thing to think about would be cattle or bison on the mm -hmm. landscape. Fire, the change of seasons, the availability of water is going to change their migration patterns and where they go to graze. And grazing itself is a disturbance, so that's going to change the ve vegetation types there. So that itself is going to have an effect on heterogeneity in the system. The second one is fire and grasslands. So how fire frequency and fire intensity impacts the vegetation types in space and time. So think about how the vegetation that really likes fire is going to dominate in one area versus not dominate in another. Mm -hmm. And that's going to depend on where the fire can reach. So a big, flat, rolling grassland, the fire is going to be able to reach that very easily. But those canyons or rocky hilltops, things of that nature that fire can't reach so much, you're going to see different vegetation types because fire's not moving through that area and creating that disturbance as frequently, if sure. at all. Yeah. Lastly, they cover fire and fuel, which is a more general discussion of how fire distribution itself is heterogeneous on a landscape. Fuel type, fuel availability, the simple geography, like we just discussed, of canyons and cliffs versus these broad open prairies. Those are all going to factor into changes in how fire behaves in a system and how intensely or frequently fire burns in a particular part of that landscape and creates heterogeneity all on its own. I'll also take the time here to note that the paper goes into a discussion here on discontinuities, which is a topic that we will cover in a future episode. Yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> Just a nice little plug. Figured I may as well. So I guess that brings us to the modern paper, the application paper, whatever we want to call it. Mm, um, works and, for me. Yeah. And so for this one, I read the paper 
Impervious surface and heterogeneity are opposite drivers to maintain bird richness in a Cerrado city uh, by Sousa et al. Uh, in the journal Landscape and Urban Planning. So basically this paper looks at the urbanization of a city in central uh, West Brazil. Um, that's sort of a, Cerrado is like a ecosystem type. It's how and how gotcha. this urbanization affects a Cerrado uh, bird hotspot community focusing on like richness of bird feeding groups. So sort of like how many species are there and in what abundance. Um, and these birds are sort of, they define them by feeding groups. So frugivore, nectivore, granivore, do they eat fruits? Do they eat seeds? You know, this sort of thing. Oh, okay. So cool. yeah, so that's sort of how they looked at um, different types of birds, functional groups or feeding groups. Um, and a cerrado is, is similar to a savanna ecosystem, if that sort of helps anyone. And so what they did is they looked at how was bird richness uh, affected by impervious surfaces. So concrete, that sort of thing. We're talking about urbanization. Um, and number of houses and a vegetation index called the SDNDVI, whatever, just an index of vegetation um, that they use as a proxy of heterogeneity. So how many hmm. different kinds of vegetation are in a space? So they basically found that the number of trees didn't really influence plant specialists, granivores, types of birds, but the number of houses and the NDVI index that they used to represent vegetation heterogeneity did. So, huh. yeah. So they basically, uh, what they, they say is our findings give support to urban planning initiatives that optimize patch dynamics and heterogeneity at multiple spatial scales um, as being appropriate for cities within Cerrado landscapes. So basically, uh, more heterogeneity, even in an urbanization concept, where you're going to have a lot of impervious surfaces, you're going to have a lot of people, you're going to have a lot of buildings, you're going to have a lot of you know, what we think of as a modern city, little patches of park of green space, of lawn, of different kinds of vegetation too. So not just, you know, maybe what we think of here in the U.S. is like a nice green, you know, what's the type of grass? Fescue lawn or whatever. Um, grass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, different kinds of vegetation, even in a highly heterogeneous landscape, you know, building forest, building grassland, parking lot, few bushes over there, that it is enough to really positively influence the richness of bird species in an urban environment. And in this case, that's particularly important because you're talking about um, a sort of bird biodiversity hotspot uh, in the Cerrado. Yeah. And I don't know a ton about Cerrado ecology, but you know, applied at, in different locations, if you have an area where urbanization is rapidly increasing, but you do also have a lot of bird species or whatever other species that you wanna maintain, maybe you don't need to set aside these perfect pristine landscapes you know people are going to build things but make sure when you're doing your urban planning put some parks in there put some trees in there inc incorporate heterogeneous green space that's of many different vegetation types and that and that might really help with sort of preventing biodiversity loss in urbanization this is just one study but we can extrapolate a little bigger maybe yeah no, that's very cool. It's very interesting too. Yeah, wouldn't really think about that necessarily, but it definitely makes sense that right you know, tree building tree you know, doesn't necessarily 
result in just habitat fragmentation, for example, but in some circumstances it might be able to actually enhance mm -hmm. heterogeneity to some degree. Yeah, and that way we, we stop with this maybe either or thinking. We have a all concrete city with no animals. You know, if we if humans move here, we're gonna ruin everything. And then this perfect untouched wilderness. You know, sometimes I think that we do this sort of either or idea. Yeah. We don't need to do that necessarily in a lot of cases. You know, some animals do need really big kind of untouched, you know, wolves need big extents, you know, landscape extents and, you know, whatnot. But we can do a lot for bird diversity and insect diversity and, and you know, smaller mammal diversity by incorporating heterogeneity into our urban and semi-urban spaces. And they had another conclusion in this paper uh, they say at larger scales, impervious surface, so like concrete and plant heterogeneity modifies which birds can be found in a certain area. But at smaller scales, public and private gardens associated with buildings can create local habitats and opportunities for birds. So you can think about this at different scales, depending on who you are. If you're an urban planner or a lawmaker or a construction person and you get to influence how a city grows and what you build and you, you know, you have significant influence, you can make certain choices about what you do. But even if you're just someone who has, you know, a home or access to a private or public garden and you can put in a few more um, native species, you know, a lot of butterfly gardens are popular, that sort of thing. It, you can, this requires thinking in multiple scales um, and thinking across landscapes. So sort of incorporate some of that scale really nicely. Very cool. Yeah, so it was kind of a... Very interesting. Yeah, I thought it was kind of a fun paper and uh, really explicitly mentioned heterogeneity and scale. And I was like, ah, oh, thank you. Because sometimes it is, we do th it is such a... Um, we, we don't define scale and heterogeneity a lot of times in studies because we're like, we're working here on this problem for the length of... You know what I mean? It's not so explicitly stated. So I thought that was really nice that this paper did that. So should we move into... Resilience in the news? I suppose we should. <laughs> <laughs> what did you find this week that was um, either implicitly or explicitly mentioned heterogeneity and or scale? Well, I may have cheated a little bit with this. Okay. <laughs> but that, that's only because it was some like good news. That's, so yeah, it felt please. like <laughs> in 2020, good news was uh, good news. Hard to come so by. This, <laughs> So you can actually factor in heterogeneity and scale into this implicitly, okay. but it's explicitly about resilience. Oh, great. So uh, this was an article by Eric Stockstad in Science Magazine, and the topic of discussion is some corals can survive long heat waves. Oh. So we all know that a few degrees of heat can bleach corals. It's been a mm -hmm. longstanding concern in the scientific community and the ecological community about global warming as the oceans warm up. Essentially, we're losing a lot of these corals due to coral bleaching. Mm -hmm. But some research on long heat waves as opposed to shorter heat waves shows that some corals can actually recover and they can awesome. do so even before the heat wave ends. Oh, that's pretty fantastic. I hadn't heard. I've definitely uh, read a lot of the doom and gloom coral stuff. So this is... Very nice. Exactly. That's why, that's why this one <laughs> caught my interest. So the brain coral in the study that started out with heat-sensitive algae ended up, maybe not bouncing back, but adapting. Okay. Although they don't, they uh, almost use the term 
bounce back. They don't quite. So sure. It, it seems to me to be more of an ecological resilience definition, even though they don't particularly use one or the other. Sure. But the brain coral in the study wound up having a higher survival rate than the more heat-tolerant brain coral with, mm-hmm. I should say, the brain coral with more heat-tolerant algae. And they kind of think that might be the case because the heat-sensitive algae provides more food, which lets the coral bank up an energy reserve and better survive the coral bleaching. But they aren't too sure just yet. Nonetheless, it shows some significant adaptation, and it also demonstrates some uncertainty and surprise that's involved even in some of these studies about principles that are fairly well understood, like beyond a certain amount of heat, uh, corals will bleach. Yeah, corals have problems. Corals have problems. Yeah. They also suspect that water quality may be a big factor too. Mm-hmm. So corals with less pollution stress seem to do better, which isn't too surprising. Mm-hmm. But to think about this in terms of a, a resilience and complexity paradigm, we see that the combination of heat and pollution will push these corals over the edge and into a a bleached alternative state. Right. Whereas one disturbance of the other wouldn't be sufficient to do so and they would remain in their more desirable present state. Right. Yeah, and sort of one of my first thoughts when you started talking about this, uh, because it is based on the algae within the coral sort of structure, right? So one question I have, and I don't know if the article addresses this at all, but I'd be interested for further research is, is one of the ways that these coral and their algae are recovering, could it be due to um, sort of like functional uh, heterogeneity within the algae population? Maybe some of the algae living in some of these corals just happen to be a little more heat resistant, you know, genetic mutation, what have you. And so then, you know, those that are less heat resistant die out during this heating event. Some of these ones that just happen to be more heat resistant then have like a, an advantage and can sort of functionally compensate for the others and, and start to reproduce and, you know, help the coral in this case. So I, I'd be interested to see what's happening sort of at the genetic level of the algae there. Yeah, it's super interesting, especially the question of whether there is, yeah, that functional redundancy that's playing mm-hmm. a role in helping improve the resilience of these corals. Right. I think for your question, it's very interesting that the higher survival rate was with the heat-sensitive algae rather than the heat-tolerant algae. And I think that points to the idea that these are very complex and the scientists making predictions didn't think about it in the context of which algae is better at providing Mm -hmm. these food reserves for the corals. And so the survival rate for the heat-sensitive algae was 82% and the heat-tolerant algae was 25%. That's so odd incredibly big difference (laughs) that's so weird it's not what you would expect but what do we know about resilience (laughs) expect expect uncertainty and surprise julie and also maybe that they've classified their uh algae's heat tolerances incorrectly because they sound like they should be oppositely named so (laughs) (laughs) that's cool that'll be a fun thing to keep tabs on uh as coral research progresses So what did you come up with this week, Julie? Well, mine's a little more doom and gloom. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. We should have ended with mine then. (laughs) I know, we should have. Um, But I think that one of the last things that I talked about 
in one of the episodes that we recorded last sort of winter before, you know, everything exploded was the wildfires in Australia. Um, and I found more wildfire news. So (laughs) yeah, I, yeah, I'm looking at scientific American, uh, an article called severe wildfires raise the chance for future monstrous blazes um, by Ula Trobrock Trobach. Um, and what they, you know, they, they give a little background on big severe fires, fire regimes, how things are changing. You know, it says to lessen the risk of catastrophic wildfires, California's forests need more routine burns. We know that Eco- a lot of ecosystems need to burn. And we've had a long history of fire suppression during the 20th century in the United States, which built up uh, dense vegetation, dry leaf litter, and now we're getting some a dramatic rise in megafires. I think that we've chatted about that before. Um, that's becoming more widely known in the news. Uh, this article says, more ironic is the new research that shows that massive fires do not necessarily reduce the incidence of future massive fires in the same place. In California alone, recent large fires have burned within the footprint of previous ones, including the 2012 Chips Fire, the 2013 Rim Fire, and parts of the 2018 Camp Fire. So these locations that already had really catastrophic mega burns, to the point that we have named them, are already starting to experience subsequent mega, you know, mega fires, mega burns. Mm-hmm. You know, and you wouldn't necessarily, at first thought, you're like, well, everything burned up. What is there left to burn there, basically? You know, which is... Basically, some ecologists who are monitoring field plots in Sierra Nevada have observed that these high severity fires tend to produce more high severity fires. When an intense blaze rips through most of the trees, it leaves behind a scorched and shadeless areas. Little shrubs easily pop up in resulting surplus of sunlight. Um, the dead tree, the trees that burned and uh, died as a result of that mega fire, but were not completely consumed, they fall over. And so that you have all this mm. dead biomass there. In the first few years, this new shrubby stuff that's coming in is pretty wet, so it doesn't burn. But then a few years late, you know, over time, these bushes accumulate dead twigs and leaves. You've still got all those logs there from the last giant burn. Then all you need is a lightning strike or something and sets it all off. So, yeah. And so where heterogeneity comes into this is that what they talk about as a typical wildfire. So not one of these mega blazes, sort of a, you know, in an, in an ideal or a, you know, there's no such thing as a natural fire regime because, you know, Native Americans used to do a lot of prescribed burning in the U.S. and, you know, humans are part of quote unquote natural fire regimes, but sort of the, right. the pre-mega blaze fire regimes, they say used to be a patchy mix of low severity areas where flames cruise close to the ground, eating up pine needles, debris and smaller plants and high areas of high severity where embers climb to the canopy and destroy entire trees. Um, and then they said that some islands of land were usually left unburned too. So back in the sort of traditional fire regimes, you know, maybe the kind of fire regimes we want to get back to, it used to be that a wildfire would um, burn a little bit over there, just sort of low, doesn't destroy any trees, but you know, eats the undergrowth. A few miles away, you might have a big wildfire, eat some trees, but it's pretty contained. You know, it really torches one area, but it doesn't turn into these 40,000 acre, 100,000 acre monstrosities that we're seeing. And then between these sort of patchy heterogeneous, heterogeneous, God, Lord, I cannot say heterogeneous anymore. (laughs) Between these heterogeneous uh, fires would be islands of untouched, unburned locations. 
and these wildfires would occur, you know, they would sort of rotate, you know, the way, th- way that we think of rotational grazing or anything. This place might burn lightly one year in 10 years, it might have a huge fire, then it might not burn for another five or 10, you know what I mean? And it just sort of rotates through the landscape. Um, Very much yeah. in the vein of Fullendorf et al.'s yes. fire and fuel loads and exactly. heterogeneity in the landscape. Exactly. And the mega fires of late have had a larger proportion of high severity areas. It says in 2014, about half of the King fire burned at a high severity and killed all of the conifers, like every single conifer across a 40,000 acre area in the central Sierras east of Sacramento. And, you know, these particular scientists say that's way outside of what they would think would have occurred in the previous natural fire regime. Um, And now that entire 40,000 acre area is sort of homogenized instead of having within that maybe all 40,000 acres of that area in the quote unquote previous natural whatever fire regime would have burned within a certain time period, but it wouldn't have been all at once and it wouldn't have been all at the same severity. Uh, Back-to-back fires can completely convert a landscape or maybe in our language, convert it to an alternative stable state. Uh, The large high severity regions often reset to chaparral, which is a type of shrubland or sometimes grasslands. So these fires on this scale might be changing the stable states of these locations from forest to something entirely different. Because when you think about, you know, like we said, in the, nat- in the natural fire regimes, there would still have been severe fires, but they would have been at a much smaller scale. And when you think about um, if it's a small, super high intensity fire and all the trees there die, there's still trees right around the edge in the areas that didn't burn nearly as much that can drop their seeds into there and regrow that forest. When you have every single conifer in a 40,000 acre area torched, where's where are you getting your seeds? Where are you, you know? Yeah. So just sort of an interesting, uh, I think I'll end by using this word that they use and I really like is pyrodiversity. We don't just want big, huge fires. We want big, huge fires and little tiny fires and no fires at all. And we want to increase our fire diversity or maybe just revert it back to what it used to be. So there's a little bit of heterogeneity and uh, 2020 doom and gloom. Heavy stuff. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (sighs) That's the problem with reading science news sometimes, right? We like to report on difficult things and I should look for a few more happy coral articles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that's okay. The doom and gloom stuff's important too. Well, it also tied nicely into uh, we started the quarantine with a fire. Uh, at least I did talk about fires, and uh, here we still are, still in the fires. It does make it come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, do you have any closing words, Connor, for our audience at home? Well, I hope everyone stays healthy and well. We're going to keep hopefully putting out new podcasts now. I think we've got our remote setup working now. We'll see. We'll see when I edit this, whether uh, whether we sound just as good as in person or uh, not. It's true. If the audio <laughs> quality is terrible, might be waiting a while yet. We'll do our best. That's right. So thanks for listening to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway. We'll see you all very soon. Take care. Bye.